Good morning, all. It's good to be back again and continuing on in our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, today we're looking at joy, of which people like me have got a really unexpressive face. You know, I'm the sort of person that they make that joke about, like, if you know the joy of the Lord, you better tell your face about it. <laughs> so don't confuse my, my facial expression for reality, because otherwise I look bored most of the day. Anyway, let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do indeed have reasons why we can rejoice always in the Lord. You are unchanging. Your character is always good. Your commands toward us are always good. Well, we know so often we don't experience the joy uh, that we should, should experience. Help us to dig deeper into you. And as we look to your word, we pray that uh, you might be instructing us. You might be personally speaking to us. That we might love you more deeply and serve you more wholeheartedly. Help me as I speak to speak clearly and to, uh, to represent you well. But most of all, do that thing that you sent your word uh, to accomplish, to bring about change in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who finds it a joy when you're travelling along the highway and you get a section where it says 40 kilometres an hour roadworks and there's absolutely no roadworks happening, there's not even little witch's hats or anything like that and everyone else is going flying past you at 100 k's an hour and you think, I'm running late for something. There's no reason why I need to be going 40 k's an hour it feels and seems much better to be doing what everybody else is doing. And eventually you get to that point and think, this is ridiculous. Clearly someone's just forgotten to take down the signs. Foot goes down and up to 100 k's an hour you go. Then you hit a pothole. Your tyres go down. And all of a sudden you're like, ah, there actually was something going on. Now sometimes there's things which when you look at them, What you're instructed to do looks like it's burdensome and it looks like it's a bad option. And sometimes the alternative will look and maybe even feel like it is a far more desirable and satisfying option. You could say the same when it comes to Christian joy. Some of the things which God has given us for our joy do not immediately look appealing always, nor do they become immediately satisfying always. And at the same time, the alternatives may appear more appealing and may even seem more gratifying, particularly within terms of an immediate sense. Some of the things that God has given us for joy, sometimes are other things which seem, and only seem, a better option. Today we're up to our fourth in our series on the fruit of the Spirit, I'm not going to do this for the entirety till the end of the series, but I will uh, give a little quick recap of what we've done. But come week 11, that might be a little bit tedious. In the first week, we did a bit of a basic overview of Galatians 5, 13 to 26, the section in which the passage on the, the fruit of the Spirit finds itself. But we saw that it doesn't stand alone. It came after a list of things spoken of as being the 
the desires or the, the works of the flesh. And we saw how the works of the flesh are so opposed to the fruit of the Spirit that pursuing one will hinder and squash the other. But we were also given that wonderful promise in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What we saw as we concluded that particular week, we saw that everything we do, everything we practice, is either training us to become more like Christ or becoming more ungodly. To think about how, what are the things we are training ourselves and disciplining ourselves for. In the second week, we looked at how to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. We saw that the fruit of the Spirit is not just nine things like a checklist you see in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Because it says, and things like these, meaning things beyond just this list, but things that are the character of God himself that is placed within us. Things which would include things like thankfulness, humility and compassion, uh, which we will cover, cover things like that later in the series. But we defined fruit of the Spirit as this. As in all transformation in mindset, attitude and action produced by the Spirit in the life of a Spirit-led believer to make them more like Christ. That is the end goal, but the work itself is the work of the Spirit. But we also observe that while it is the work that the Spirit produces, we are also called and told and commanded to bear fruit. The analogy we used a lot of times during that week was the analogy of desiring to have apples in your backyard. If you desire to have apples in your backyard, your primary pursuit isn't apples. Your primary pursuit is buying an apple tree, putting it in soil and looking after it. And we drew that connection that if our desire is to be bearing fruit, it is through abiding in Christ, not by pursuing individual acts. Last week... Week number three, we looked at the primacy of love. One of the things we looked at is the way that love is foundational. It is the foundational spiritual grace upon which all of the others are built. We saw from 1 Corinthians 13 that where it says love is, it actually listed some of the things we see in the fruit of the Spirit. Likewise, things like patience and things like that done without love are nothing. We had a quick look at what love looks like. And we saw how not only love, but all of the fruit of the Spirit are not coming with any rules or regulations as to who it is appropriate to apply them towards or under what circumstances. And we saw that love, what it looks like, is it gives at any cost to self because our desire is the best interest of the other, regardless of who that person is, regardless of how they've treated us. We saw that love willingly gives to the needs of others. And funnily enough, my neighbours have been coming around lots this week uh, requesting to borrow or to use different things. They put me to the test. They must have been listening. Love sacrifices to forgive others. And we sort of spent a bit more time on that because I noticed around the room there were people who, who that really resonated with. And I do hope that, um, that those who felt the need to go and to, to express their forgiveness to people who have hurt them or whatever else in the past, hopefully um, you acted upon those convictions. Uh, if not, then consider this a good reminder. But today we're looking at joy. Joy is possibly the most neglected in terms of when people are talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Because people will think, if I've got a good relationship with God, if I've got a good relationship with people, if I'm living a holy life, 
Surely joy is a negligible thing. Now, it's just a peripheral on the side. I mean, why, why does even joy get included in the fruit of the Spirit? Why even preach a sermon on joy? Does the Bible even say much? The outline of where we're headed this morning is this. Firstly, what does the Bible say about joy in the life of believers? Secondly, should we expect to experience joy every moment of our lives? Third, what things hinder or steal our joy? And fourthly, in our conclusion, we're going to look at what things lead to joy. So firstly, what does the Bible say about joy in the life of believers? Who's read through Romans 14? It's one where it talks about in the church they're disputing over little minor things like whether they should eat certain things or whether they should drink certain things. It's possibly 14 verse 2, the verse you've used to pick on a vegetarian when it talks about those weak in faith who only eat vegetables, which you've completely taken out of context for your own own benefit. But eat bacon anyway, it's a good thing. But at the end of that, Paul's point is, hang on, here you are, bickering about these minor peripheral things. He says, let's get back to the heart of who we are. Let's get back to the heart of what the kingdom of God is all about. And so in verse 17 he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he says, let's not waste time talking about peripheral matters. Let's get back to the core and the centre. Righteousness. That we were unrighteous. That Christ has paid the price for our sin. That we can have his righteousness. That we can have peace with him through what Jesus has done on the cross. But also amongst the list of things that Paul says is central to come back to, he says, is joy. Now joy, unlike food and drink, he says, is not a peripheral matter, which you can choose for yourself whether you do choose to participate or you don't participate. From Paul's perspective, joy wasn't minor or peripheral. It was part of central to what kingdom living was about. Have you ever thought that or even noticed that? But after saying that, what about trivial side things? He says, get back to things that pertain to the kingdom and he includes joy as part of that. But is this emphasis on joy a bit of a one-verse wonder? Well, let's have to see if Jesus had anything to say about joy. Because Christian joy isn't something limited to the writings of Paul. Jesus often spoke about his intention for his believers and his followers to have fullness of joy. And we're going to look at three examples of ways in which he spoke of that. Firstly, he said, he speaks of fullness of joy that comes from obedience. John chapter 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So he's called them back to, the, to obedience, saying, I've told you these things. So that you may have the joy of Christ and you may have joy in its fullness. Now, I said earlier on, we may not have immediately experienced joy through obedience. I mean, after all, obedience to Christ naturally goes against what our flesh desires, doesn't it? But after all, he is our creator. He's the one who created us, therefore the one who knows most intimately what we need and what is best for us. Therefore, there is joy to be found in obedience. I want to see a prime example. Go back to the Garden of Eden. 
Here, Adam and Eve, they've got absolutely everything. They've got perfect relationship with God, perfect relationships with one another. They're told they can have everything they like and enjoy it, except for one fruit from one tree. Satan comes along and all of a sudden, something outside what God has given for their good appears to them more satisfying, this is going to be better for us, and they take that. As we know, in the long term, that was not a good decision at all. It looked more appealing. It was not for their good. So often, things that we know which are provided for our joy will not feel or appeal as though they are the most um, attractive option to us. But in the long term, obedience will lead to fullness of joy. Because everything that God has called us to is part of his character and part of his character from the one who designed us and who knows the very things that we need. In obedience, we become who we were created to be in the image of God. Secondly, Jesus speaks about fullness of joy that comes from answered prayer. In John 16, he says, Until now, you have not asked anything, you have, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I probably need to clarify that one so the verse doesn't get taken out of context as though somehow you can ask anything you want and just put in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer and ching, it's all yours. To ask something in Jesus' name means according to his character and in accordance to his will. Like we're told in the Psalms, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Meaning that if your delight is in the things of God, he loves to give you those things that you ask for if your desires are moulded by the things of God. And so Jesus here in John 16 saying, ask according to my will and my character and I'd love to give you those things and in receiving those things, your desire and your joy will be full. And the third thing he speaks of but fullness of joy comes from, is security in our salvation. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he's got the other disciples gathered around him as he prays this prayer. And he says, and he's praying to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of distraction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he speaks of the way that all that he's drawn, he has kept except the one that was prophesied that would not. And he says, I speak these things while I'm in the world. In other words, for the benefit, for those who are hanging around me, I am the one who have kept them. So there's joy in knowing the certainty of those who have come to Christ that he will keep. We even saw that in the reading in in First Peter, you know, the, the wonderful inheritance kept in heaven for you, that God is the one keeping our inheritance for us. So in addition to Paul, Jesus highlights three things that lead to fullness of joy. Obedience, answered prayer, and the assurance of our salvation. But the thing is, you read through your Bible and you think, I get the impression that we're supposed to be joyful always. But then, in my experience, that's not what I see. Is there something wrong with me? And that, if you're having that question, that's a very common question. I'm going to go so bold and say, hands up those who experience joy every second of the day in every circumstances. What's wrong with you? Freaks, no hands! 
That's not a genuine criticism. My hand wasn't up either. If we're honest, we're not always happy. If we're honest, we experience anxiety, we experience pain, we experience grief. So there's a question. Should we expect to experience joy every moment of our life? That's our second section. Like all matters for Christian living, our starting point is, well, what does the Bible say? Now we see Paul as an example. We saw this when we went through the book of Philippians. Paul is a guy whose life wasn't cruisy and full of things to rejoice about. He suffered regular persecution. In Philippians, he's there writing for prison. And while he's there in prison, not knowing the outcome of his trial, whether he's going to be set free or whether or not he's going to be put to the death sentence, he encourages the Philippian church to rejoice always. Now, his words in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. In Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul commands the believers in Philippi to rejoice and to rejoice always. Now it's because it's such a foreign concept to rejoice and the Philippian church were going under difficult times. He says, and again I will say it, rejoice. We've just started a new year. But when you look back at 2016... For most of us, there will be things that happen either to ourselves or people close to us that are not means that we would want to rejoice about. And we think, how can I rejoice always? But look directly at what Paul had to say. He doesn't say rejoice about everything always. He says rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't say rejoice about every single thing that happens around you. Ooh, my dog just got run over. Praise the Lord. But he does say rejoice in the Lord always. Because our circumstances are like a roller coaster. Sometimes we have things that we can rejoice about. Other times things are just plain tough and hard. But we can rejoice in the Lord always because he is not, he's not changing. He hasn't got his good days and his bad days. His character is the same yesterday, today and forever. His promises stand forever. He's always working his things for good for those who love him and called according to his purposes. We can rejoice who he is. We can rejoice in what he's done. We can rejoice at what he's promised. And we can do that amongst our good days. We can do that on our bad days because he is not changing in the middle of our circumstances. He is praiseworthy in both situations. And like all of the fruit of the Spirit... Joy is appropriate at all times. Joy in the Lord, appropriate at all times. Not just the times when it seems conducive, like it seems easy or it makes an obvious natural connection. That being said, sometimes it is even still hard to rejoice, even if our rejoicing is specifically in the Lord. So thirdly, we're going to look at what are some of the things that hinder or steal our joy? Just as all fruit, we saw when we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, fruit was singular, it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit of the Spirit. There is one fruit that consists of all of these things, the Spirit produces all of these things, that Christians don't just have a number, like two or three fruit of the Spirit. We are, the fruit of the Spirit is consisting of all of these things. And just as the fruit is expected of all believers, also all fruit is equally within reach and we are equally equipped amongst all believers. 
We've been reminded many times that verse in 2 Peter 1.3, which is a constant encouragement to me, we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. So the absence of joy or any other fruit is not because we are less equipped than another person. That being said, we all admit that we fail. We all admit that we don't walk perfectly in step with the Spirit on a daily basis. What I seem to find is that usually the fruit that we exhibit the least of tend to be the ones that are most opposed to our natural disposition. So, for example, if you're naturally an impatient person, that person will struggle more so with the fruit of patience. But joy, like all fruit, is expected in all Christians and not just those for whom it is conducive to, to those to whom it comes naturally. We don't experience joy in all seasons, though. So what are some of the things that hinder that joy? We're going to look at three. Firstly, first hindrance is sin, either in actions or in attitude. Now, if true joy is found in close relationship with God, it is found in adoration of who he is and all he is and all he has done and all of his nature. Or you could say in simple terms, true joy is in the enjoyment of God above all else. So why do I say that sin is a hindrance to our joy? If we shift to finding our ultimate joy in God himself and we turn to something else to find satisfaction or joy, we turn from the source of genuine true joy to something else and it will take away our joy in the Lord. It's no surprise that when we sin, when we're finding our joy in things outside his character that are opposed to his character and opposed to his will, because loving God and loving the world are not compatible things. One will lead you into joy and the other one will rob and steal. To give you a picture of what that looks like, remember David and Bathsheba, how he, how he had, had an affair with her then arranged for the husband to be killed. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote as he's thinking about his sin. He speaks about how his sins ever before him. And in verses 10 through to 12, David writes these words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So he asks for forgiveness of sins. Then he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. In other words, when David had been allured to pursue joy in something else other than God, he recognised that something of the joy of his salvation was taken away. And something that was taken away that could only be restored by forgiveness of sins and right relationship with God to be brought in nearness to him again. So our first hindrance is when we um, allured from our true source of joy to pursue a false joy. Second hindrance is misplaced trust. So we're not just talking about um, having a, looking to something else that is necessarily bad for a source of joy, but even when we depend upon something which is good as a foundation of our joy, can also take away from our joy in the Lord. So, for example, a person in ministry may either intentionally or unintentionally, look to their ministry as being the primary source of their joy. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a lot of joy in ministry. 
But there's also some really hard times. You deal with people's difficult things that come up in life. And if your joy is found upon your ministry, you'll find one day, top of the world, next day down the bottom is pits. The only true source of genuine joy is in God himself. If you look to find joy in even something like ministry, it will go up and down like everything else. Jesus even reminded his followers of that very thing in Luke chapter 10. Remember when he sent out the 72? Then it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here they come back. They're all excited about how they're seeing God work through them. And Jesus says, don't let your joy be in the result of your ministry. Rest your joy upon something that's solid and unchanging. Rest it upon the fact that your names are written in heaven. So sin, misplaced trust, can, can lead us away from experiencing joy in God. And thirdly, trials. Now, unlike the first two, trials in themselves do not explicitly hinder our joy. It's our way which we respond to them does. But James and Peter write about how a Christian is to respond to the trials, things that come up in life. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it doesn't say if you experience trials, as though maybe it does, just let you know in case this happens. It says when you experience trials, consider it joy because this is an opportunity to have your faith tested, to see the quality of your faith and it has the ability when you hold on to God that it would strengthen you, thoroughly equipped Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Peter makes a similar point. 1 Peter 6 9, we had as part of the reading. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So Peter acknowledges that there is grief, that there is pain in the trials that come. But he says during that process is an opportunity to demonstrate the genuineness of your faith. That as you hold on to him, and even though you do not see him, you believe in him, you're trusting in him, you're depending on him, there is an outcome of being filled with a joy inexpressible that is accomplished through clinging on to God in the midst of trials. There is joy because God has a purpose in working through them. Regularly when we're going through hard times, someone will pull out to you, Romans 8.28, for we know that that God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now the idea that doesn't mean that 
God makes everything work out in a sweet, easy way, but it means that whether it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, God is using that for a good outcome in your life for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Which might make you wonder, according to what purpose? If he's called us according to his purpose and he's working things for our good according to that purpose, what is that purpose? The very next verse tells you what that purpose is. Those whom he predestined, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why we can rejoice in good times and bad times. Because God is using all things, the good and the bad, for our good, for our benefit, according to the purpose to which he called us, and that purpose is to make us more like Christ. And as Christians, it should be our desire to become more like Christ, shouldn't it? And when we come across hardships and all, the only thing we want to pray is, God, take it away, and we ignore the fact that God might be actually using that for our benefit, we're basically saying, God, I want to become like Jesus, but not this way, not today. Do it some other way. So if sin, misplaced trust and trials are cautions to warn us uh, that we don't hinder us in our joy, rather than finish on a negative, let's finish on what are some things that lead to joy. Firstly, experiencing the presence of God. Now we had Psalm 16 read at the beginning of the service, which the psalmist writes, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night he also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you do not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. At what point does the psalmist say that his heart is glad, that he is unshaken, and that his whole being rejoices? When I set the Lord before me. When I ponder upon, when I put myself into the presence of God, when I'm focused upon him, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. And then concludes in verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. You can't have any more than full. Full is as full as it gets. In the presence of God there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you've got maximum amount of joy. Maximum duration forevermore. Fullness of joy forever. Why would we look somewhere else? No matter how much things of this world might glitter, at the very best, they might give us a temporary joy. But then over time, we'll find they lead to disappointment, and unfortunately, I've learned that lesson too many times. When you think about a fellow believer who has a genuine joy in their relationship with God, you will find someone who has a genuine, close relationship with God, who has a deep, personal relationship. But just like all fruit as we've been talking throughout the series, the primary pursuit is not the fruit itself. The primary pursuit is of Jesus Christ and abiding in him. The second thing I want to speak of and close upon that leads to our joy, 
One of the things I did in part as preparing for this is I actually printed out every single verse in the Bible that speaks about joy. And particularly in the New Testament, I came across an emphasis that I'd never really picked up on how regularly it comes up. Now, it makes sense that you'd expect to see a connection of rejoicing and joy in the Lord when we speak about our salvation, how God has taken us out of the the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of his Son. But something that might not so immediately spring to mind but comes up so regularly in the New Testament as a source of joy is seeing God at work in the life of others. Either those, not just only those close to you, but even people who are distant from you. I'm not going to go through all of them because there's lots. But just to give you a small sample of what that looks like. In Acts 15, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now remember, there was a time when the Jewish people would look upon the Gentiles with, with hostility. And here they are speaking about people they once had hostility towards, who they may not even know personally or in, in specifics. But as they talk about the work that God has done in them, bringing them salvation, it brought great joy to see the work of God in the life of others. First Thessalonians two seventeen to 20 But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul rejoices as he sees the people in Thessalonica, seeing them growing in such a way, seeing the work of God as they turn from idols to the living God. Paul says, that is my joy to see God at work in you. And just one more from 3 John 2 to 4. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with, with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Now, the Apostle John finds no greater joy than to hear that God is at work in the life of people, bringing them to obedience, bringing people to salvation. Which challenges us. When was the last time that we genuinely rejoiced at seeing the work of God in the life of other people, whether they're people we know directly or from afar? Or even more difficult, when was the last time you were the cause of another person rejoicing in the Lord as you shared at God's work in your life. It challenges us a little bit in the conversations we have, don't we? Things that we talk about, this is what I did at work, this is my hobbies, this is what happened in St Kilda footy team. Starts again in a couple months, you'll be looking forward to that in many more sermon illustrations. Don't rob other brothers and sisters in Christ, from the joy of hearing the work of God in your life. If you have something to encourage you that God has been doing in your life, don't rob others of the joy of hearing about it. I said at the beginning, joy is one of the most neglected when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. But we've seen there is one fruit 
that is expected in all believers. The pursuit isn't the, the fruit itself. The source is abiding in Christ, a deep relationship with him. The fruit is the byproduct. It is my prayer for us on a weekly basis that we would press even deeper and deeper into him, that we actually can genuinely say, I rejoice in the Lord always because my faith is founded upon my love for God. My circumstances do not change my confidence in him, whether they're good or whether they're bad. That we can truly rejoice in the Lord always, for he alone is always good. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you don't call us to anything that you don't provide for us. We know we can't rejoice in everything that happens to us or around us. But we can rejoice in you in the midst of everything that happens to us and everything that happens around us. We can rejoice that even in the worst thing that could potentially ever happen to us, you are still using that in some way that even though we don't understand, for our good, according to that purpose that you chose us for in the beginning to make us more like Christ. As we see the beauty of Christ in his life, we see certainly not a lack of difficulty, but we saw the way in which he responded to it. Help us to rejoice in you always. Help us not to see our worth or our identity upon our ever-changing circumstances, but may it rest upon the certain foundation of who we are in you. And give you thanks for what you have done for us and your promises to us, even amidst the most difficult of our circumstances. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.